Well, you can tell by now, and Rod mentioned, we're going to be doing things a little bit different this morning. And if you're a person that loves routine, I'm sorry that this is messing with you. But really, I'm not sorry. Um, there's a point as to why uh, we're spending time in the Word right now. And I think if we have some folks coming in, they're going to be like, did we set the clocks back or forward? So... Um, this morning, we, we're coming to the conclusion of Romans chapters 9, 10, and 11. Uh, these chapters, 9, 10, and 11, these three chapters form a, a, a thought unit in the letter that Paul wrote to the church in Rome. And if you've been with us for any length of time, I hope by now you understand that these chapters focus not solely, but primarily on a group of people that were precious to God. And they are the people... Israel, thank you, thank you. Okay, some of you are, are tracking with me this morning. Um, but but we, we've seen over the last few weeks that as God is working through these people that seem far off, that um, he will eventually fulfill his promises to these people. And he has also made promises to us, Gentiles, the church. And last week we were talking about God's glorious mercy in our salvation that he is able to bring everyone in under his umbrella to be his people forever. This is a wonderful celebration that we're coming to this morning of God's ability and his power to save Jew and Gentile alike. I think this passage is also fitting not just for Romans 9, 10, and 11, but also Romans chapter 1 through 11. In Romans chapter 1 through 11, you have primarily like the first part of the book of Romans, part A, and, and next week we're going to start looking at part B. Um, when, it, when I refer to part A, I'm talking about for 11 chapters, we've been diving deep and mining in the great doctrines of God, the doctrines of our salvation. Uh, theologians call it soteriology, the study of salvation. And, and we've been walking through in the text in chapters 1 until now about the problem, the problem of our sin and how we are objects of God's wrath. And that by His grace, in spite of our sin, God sent His Son Jesus to be what we could not be, and that is righteous. And that by faith in Jesus Christ, we are no longer condemned by God. And through the power of God's Spirit working inside of us, we are victorious over sin and death. And as a result of God's faithful love for us, we will never be separated from Him. These are amazing truths, awesome truths. Glorious truths. Next week, we're going to start looking at the application of these truths. As I said, this is the hinge. This is part A, part B. For the, for the next uh, four chapters, in chapters 12, 13, 14, and 15, we're going to look at the application of what it means of, based on everything that Paul has said as a result of our salvation. And so said another way, you cannot know how to live until you know how God has changed you to live that way. 
And that is why when you read through the the letters that primarily Paul wrote, but the other apostles wrote, they start with doctrine. They start with the big things, the deep truths that are foundational to what it means to follow Jesus. And out of the wellspring of that, then we have the application. Now, we can't know how to live if we don't know how we're changed. And, and, and maybe you've tried it. Maybe you've tried some self-help kind of things. Maybe you've tried, you know, the easy steps and you've tried following someone's example. But unless your, your heart has been radically transformed and you have been oriented or reoriented around the gospel and Jesus is Lord and Savior, really any attempt to change and be better isn't lasting. Because it's only God who can provide the everlasting change. It is only through Christ that we can be dead sinners and brought to new life as a result of his resurrection. And so before we get into this application part in the the letter, we're going to pause today. And Paul, you, you just maybe have to imagine with me, is sitting at the table where he wrote this letter. Or maybe he's dictating it to his secretary. And, and, and we know that he did that sometimes. He would have someone, he would, through the power of the Spirit, be speaking the words that were to be written, and there would be the secretary there covering his words. Just imagine with me, Paul was brought to this point, this letter, uh, to the church in Rome through these deep, wonderful, marvelous doctrines of salvation. And for three chapters, he's been focusing in on God's saving grace to Israel, who his heart was crushed that his brothers in the faith, and as people of Israel, were rejecting the Messiah. And he pleaded and he prayed for these people, but through the inspiration of the Spirit, God was showing him and showing us that God has not forgotten these people. He hasn't removed them, but he's going to return to them. And we read last week, all Israel will be saved. And so what does Paul do as pen is in hand, as he's at the table? Before he can move any further, he has to praise God. He has to stop and give God praise. What Paul is doing in verses 33 through 36 is he's offering to God a doxology. We sang the doxology last Sunday before our service began, but the word doxology simply means this. It's made of two compound or two words. It's a compound word. The first part is doxa, and that word means glory. And the second part, logia, which is where we get the ology, means an oral or written expression. And so put together, what Paul is doing here is, in this doxology, he is giving an expression of praise to God for what he has done. I pray that that's what we will accomplish as well this morning. This is the supernatural response of the child of God. What Paul is writing here is a supernatural response. It's really the only response that the child of God has when confronted with deep, magnificent truths. I said it should be. 
This should be the response. I mean, I don't know about you. Do you ever feel like even when you're here, you're not really here? Or when we're singing, your, your mouth might be moving, but your heart really isn't engaged? Do you ever go through dry seasons, wilderness seasons, where you're trying, you're trying to lean in, and it seems like, oh, are my words even going through the ceiling? What Paul was offering this morning is a great reminder for us that sound theology should cause in us a wellspring of praise and worship as we give God the glory for who He is. That is the essence of worship. Theology I'm going to throw this clicker through the wall. Theology is the foundation for doxology. Are you starting to see why I'm preaching now? Theology is the foundation for doxology. Deep study. It's trying me, Steve. It's trying me. Deep study of God was ultimately meant for one purpose. To be lost in wonder, admiration, and praise of the eternal being who created us to love Him. When you study God's Word, what does it do? It draws you in. It gets your attention. It helps you to remember That life isn't just all about you. It causes your affections to be lifted up. And this is why in the scriptures, when you read in the book of Job, how a man who lost everything one day is able to still praise God, the God who gives and takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. This is why and how in the book of Psalms, when you're reading David and the other psalmists who are running for their lives, who are being chased after, who are being sought after for their faith in God, for the sake of evil and all these things, that, that these people in the midst of their trouble are able to look up to heaven and praise God for who He is because their theology rooted their hearts in the sure rock of their God and Savior and that when everything else was beating against them, it didn't matter what was happening because they knew that God will never change. This is why when we read later in 2 Corinthians, when the Apostle Paul who penned these words in this moment is writing about his own life and how he's been shipwrecked and beaten and left for dead and chased out of town and maligned and all of the things that we read that happen in Paul's life, that he can say that God's grace is always sufficient for him because it's in our weakness that God's power is perfected. Doxology finds its foundation in sound theology. And so what does this mean for you right now in this moment? I don't know exactly what you're going through in your life. I don't know what's going on in your heart. I don't know what you've brought into this place this morning. 
I don't know if there's any doubts or worries or fears. I don't know if there's any struggles in your life, whether they are relational, or I don't know if there's a medical diagnosis that's hanging over you. I don't know if there's a loved one that maybe you're disconnected with and you're praying for, but your heart is broken. But whatever the weight is, whatever the trials are, whatever the struggles are, I want to affirm to you this morning that as we come together as God's people to sing God's praises, Everything we do is rooted in what we know about our God. And the cure for the heart that is wavering isn't to just sing more songs because songs make you feel happy. The cure for the heart that is wavering is to get back in the Word of God and hear God's truth as it is settled in our hearts. And what that does is causes a wellspring in us of praise and thankfulness to God. Are you beginning to understand why we're doing this now? We are forming our minds and hearts around what we know to be true about God. And we are also going to consider that there are even limits to what we can know. Our doxology is rooted in our theology and what we know about God in our theology isn't everything that there is to know about God. It's just the beginning. And as a result, we praise Him. We praise Him for who we know Him to be. Now our passage this morning, though, is not without difficulty. As if We haven't already been challenged by the doctrines that Paul has presented in Romans. Charles Spurgeon said this about this text. I will affirm that there is no man living who can preach from this text a sermon worthy of it. Nay, that among all the sacred orators and the eloquent pleaders for God, there did never live and never will live a man capable of reaching the height of the great argument contained in these few simple words. I utterly despair of success and therefore will not make an attempt to work out the infinite glory of this sentence. Our great God alone can expound this verse, for he only knows himself. And he only can worthily set forth his own perfections. Amen. I'm done. <laughs> like, seriously, the, the things that we're introduced to this morning. Good stuff. So what do we read? Well, if you have your Bibles open, turn to Romans 11. We're going to be in looking at verses 33 through 36. This is what Paul writes. Oh, the depth of the riches both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who became his counselor or who has first given to him that it might be paid back to him again. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To Him be the glory forever. Amen. Let me read that again. And maybe you want to join me on that last word. For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be the glory forever. Amen. What a wonderful, wonderful summary of praise. We see in this text, God reveals, we respond. 
If we are saved, the more he reveals, the deeper is our response. Listen, if you are growing in your faith and you, you are able to look back on your spiritual life from the very beginning of when you were a, a baby infant child of God to where you are now, and some of you might say, well, gee, I, I don't know. I, I feel like I might just still be a toddler. But that's okay because if you can look back and you can see where you started to where you are, I would hope that you would see as you have grown in your understanding of who your Savior is, your praise has grown with it. That you have matured in your ability and you are maturing in your opportunity to give God praise as you understand who He is more and more. In Romans... God has revealed more of his hidden counsels and private judgments than anywhere else in the scriptures. We've been invited to see some very deep things. And he has shown us more of himself here than anywhere else in creation. And I don't know about you, but for me, the view from this point is astounding. The deeper our understanding, the more profound will be our worship. Our stunned an amazed, stupefied wonder. The kind of put your hand over your mouth, take your breath away, speechless, stammering wonder of Almighty God as you consider His ways, His plans, His thoughts, His actions, His strategies just takes you away. It really does. I can't tell you how many times where I'm sitting at my computer and if you want to like just pop in on a Friday afternoon, don't stay too long because I'm writing my sermons. But if you just want to pop in and kind of take a look into my office, I'm like writing these things out that like there's worship services breaking out. It, it, it really is that way. I mean, these things, can, you cannot be confronted with these truths and leave thinking, eh, no big deal. So my goal today is to stim- stimulate you to the wonder and worship Paul felt when he first penned these words. I want to destroy the boredom and deadness that can sometimes exist in our lives. Right? We just feel like you're going through the motions. But I realize that I can't do it myself. Like that, I can't create in you that kind of attitude. That kind of response. All I can do is bring you to the scripture so that you can hear God's word and the agent that God gives you to break you out of that boredom and deadness is his spirit working in your heart. And so I pray that you are open to the Holy Spirit this morning. We're confronted with this truth. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. The focus of our attention in light of everything that Paul has said to this point is God's wisdom and knowledge. Now, God's wisdom is his ability to arrange his plan so it results in the good of all concerned and for his glory. Everyone that is invited in to God's wisdom has the opportunity to see his good on display. When Paul says his knowledge, the knowledge testifies to his ability to construct such a plan. And what's the plan that Paul is praising God for? Salvation of Jew and Gentile. I mean, who can do that? Who could arrange such a plan? Only God can. And that is what is so amazing about grace. I mean, think about this for a second, church. If it was up to mankind to put together a plan of salvation, it would look nothing like we read in the pages of Scripture. 
We would be adding works. We would be adding all these things you have to do. We would be adding performance. We would be adding attend this many times, give this much money, do all these things. God says, listen, I'm going to give it all to you, and you're the one that left me, but it's all yours anyways, and all I ask you to do is believe me. Have faith. In response to these plans, the wisdom and knowledge of God, Paul begins verse 33 with one letter in the Greek. It's two letters in the English, O. I mean, just picture Paul there thinking about all these things, and he's just like, oh, oh. That word in the Greek is the Greek letter omega. And we know Jesus is the alpha and the omega. It's the last letter of the, the Greek alphabet. Oh, this tiny little Greek letter is wholly fixed upon God. It's in this sense that the O of verse 33 causes us to be totally overwhelmed by the greatness of our God. This is the response of the heart when you consider who God is. It's just like, oh, who are we? The doctrines that are presented throughout Romans and the whole of Scripture cause us to consider the depth of God's wisdom and knowledge. It's not that just God is wise and knowledgeable like that's enough paul says no let's go deeper let us consider the depth of god's wisdom and knowledge what paul is saying is if you could jump in how far down would you have to go to reach the bottom of god's wisdom and knowledge what does he say it's unfathomable Now, if you've been around boats or water, you know what a fathom is, right? A fathom is a measure of depth of water. It's about six feet. What Paul is saying is if you could jump in, there is no amount calculated that you could go to reach the depth, the bottom of God's wisdom and knowledge. Let me give you some pictures to wrap your mind around these things that are hard to wrap our mind around. In 1521, Ferdinand Magellan was in the process of leading the first boat trip around the world to circumnavigate the globe, right? He was not a flat earth society member. He got on the boat and he's like, let's go around the world. In fact, he died on the mission. The boats made it. He didn't make it. But Ferdinand Magellan, somewhere out in the Pacific Ocean, decided to, go, to figure out how deep the ocean waters were underneath the boat. So what he did was he spliced together six lengthy lines and attached them to a cannonball. And he threw the cannonball into the sea. And it is written, as he lowered the cannonball until the line ran out, uh, it ran out about 400 fathoms or 2,400 feet. And he concluded the ocean was immeasurably deep. And he is right. In his mind, it was immeasurably deep. They figure at the place in the Pacific, whereabouts where they did this experiment, uh, now we know that he would probably need 50 lines spliced together to reach the bottom of the sea. 
But in our minds, the ocean depths are limited. Like you can reach the bottom of the ocean. And we've done that with submarines that we've created that can bust through all of the pressure kind of things and go deep and go long into what has been created. So let's consider something else. What about deep space? Let's use deep space as the picture in our mind to consider the depth of God's knowledge and wisdom. On June 12, 1983, while traveling at over 30,000 miles per hour, the Pioneer 10 spacecraft became the first human object ever created to leave the solar system. At that speed, only after 300,000 years will the craft pass the nearest star. 300,000 years. The star's name is Ross 248. It's a red dwarf in the constellation Taurus. And this star is 10.1 light years from Earth, or about 59.3 trillion miles away. Most likely, history will end before it reaches its starry destination. Space is too big, its depths too immeasurable. And God's wisdom and knowledge are rooted. Rooted, as Paul says, in his riches. The point is they are limitless. God's wisdom is limitless. The gospel is the reality of God's immeasurable wealth. The gospel, the good news that God loves you and has provided for you a Savior so that you could be forgiven of your sins and you are no longer God's enemy but you are his friend and belong to his family, and that you are given an inheritance with all the saints that have ever believed. His riches are limitless. Paul says, how unsearchable are his judgments. Some translations might have something about the tracing out. You know, you might be reading verse 33 in this phrase, uh, you can't really trace out uh, God's judgments. Now, this isn't a reference to the judgment of God in punishing sinners, but this is the judgment of what He has decreed in redemptive history before the creation of the world. That He knew the fall of mankind before He made us, and yet He went through with the creation. He didn't stop. He had a plan. He and the Son, as Paul says in Ephesians 1, worked it out. And before the foundations of the world, God was working and doing so that we could find faith in His Son and be brought back to Him. You can't put a price tag on that kind of plan. The riches are never exhausted. And so we read in verses 34 and 35, For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who became His counselor? Or who has first given to Him that it might be paid back to Him again? In these three rhetorical questions, Paul quotes from the book of Isaiah and the book of Job. And in each question that is asked, Paul is reminding us that God transcends our human comprehension. Who of us has the ability to truly grasp just how amazing 
powerful, knowledgeable, and wise our God is. It's kind of like Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6, right? He has the vision of being caught up in the heaven, and what does he do? I'm a man of unclean lips. What he's admitting is, I don't deserve to be here. Who am I? Listen, the more I learn about God, the more in awe of, uh, of him I am. I feel like the more he reveals himself to me, the more I come to understand that I am just scratching the surface. Now, that was a journey for me. I, I went to Bible college. I got a degree. I went to school for four years and learned the scriptures. I got out of school and I thought, yeah, I, I learned maybe not all of it, but most of it. Oh, foolish me. Right? If I could look back 20 years ago, and I'd just say, oh, foolish me. I mean, I feel like the more I read and know, the more I understand I don't really know. If our limited knowledge of him causes this kind of response that Paul has in Romans 11, think about what heaven will be like when we are able to rest in his presence and see his full glory. I mean, if we can agree with Paul, oh, the depth. What's it going to be like to be in his presence? Man, it's going to grab your attention forever. In verse 35, Paul quotes from Job. Job, that man that we read about that had a tough go. And he had a tough go of it as God gave permission to Satan to take everything away from him. His possessions, his wealth, and even his children. God permitted that even his physical uh, ability, his, like, he, he felt well until he was touched. And then he was not well as he was covered with boils and sores and everything. And through the book of Job, you have a conversation going on. And when you get to the end of the book of Job, Job is asking questions and God speaks from heaven and says, Job, who are you? Who has first given to him the Lord, as Paul says in verse 35, that it might be paid back to him again? Listen, everything that God does is a result of his benevolent love towards us. God is never indebted to mankind. Who can give to him? And God doesn't owe anyone. This doxology humbles us to our core. When we consider the greatness of our God, all we can do is give Him praise. In verse 36, when we read, For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be the glory forever. Amen. Very simply said, God is the source from which all things come, the means by which those things happen, and the goal towards which all things are moving. It's all about Him. The word from means source, and the word through means instrument. 
God determines everything, moves everything, and he gets the glory alone for it. God touches every aspect of life in his creation. So just for a moment, consider your own salvation. Our salvation. Salvation history. Who caused it? God did. Who provides the means for it? God did. For what purpose are we saved? To glorify Him. Romans 11 reminds us that life is not about us. It is all about Him. And to Him be the glory. Not just for today. Not just in this service. But as Paul says, forever. And then he writes... And then he writes, Amen. The word Amen means so be it. We are declaring that these truths are reality. And what do we do? We rest in them. And so if for some reason this morning you have lost the sense of wonder and awe and amazement of the greatness of God, remember just how much He loves you. If the disappointments of life have jaded you and you are frustrated that God is not moving fast enough or maybe not at all, can I remind you again of the greatness of the provision of His salvation? As I close this morning and we transition to our worship time, as you sing, think about the words that you are singing. Most importantly, think about the one that you are singing to. It is quite possible, if we take these words seriously, we could quite literally blow the roof off this building. And we have some deacons here. I think they're fine with that. If that's what happens, they're fine with it. So be it. Let's show God just how amazed we are of His grace. Let's pray.